In today's dars, I wanted to cover something that is lingering amongst us as we grow up living in the West, and that is what is Islamic and what is cultural. Doesn't matter what country you have come from, there's always elements of your own personal culture that sometimes supersede Islamic injunctions. And at times, they're based on the philosophy of Islam itself, and at times, they have no connection or link whatsoever. And this has, unfortunately, over time, caused great confusion, sometimes great difficulty, and sometimes even transgressions amongst ourselves. Now, this topic itself is very, very wide, and there's many angles to it, so I'm not going to cover every single aspect. But I would like to talk a little bit about how our rights should be towards others. In light of this, what is cultural and what is Islamic? So again, we're highlighting the fact of what are our rights towards other people, or what rights do they have as to how we deal with them and what kind of respect that we give to them. Now, living in America, we very famously have heard these words over and over. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Again, talking about rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, I'm not going to talk about what this means in terms of American history. But I would like to take these three very famous words, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and talk a little bit about what they mean within our faith. Now imagine for a moment what it means to be an Ahmadi, whether you are born or now a convert, but start from your own homes as to what it means to have life within your faith, what it means to have liberty within your faith, and what it means to have a pursuit of happiness, again, within your faith. The first and foremost is life, and very often, unfortunately, there are very many cases where spouses will treat and speak to each other with such disgust, with such low tone, with such filthy language, that after fighting with their own spouse, they would go outside to the local store and probably purchase something. And instead of cursing at that man or that person, they would speak to them with great respect. So people that they are supposed to love and cherish and take care of, they do not show the same respect they do to a stranger on the street, not even to that level. And it's very unfortunate. And so when we talk about life within our faith, we are all granted that life within our faith, which means we should be granted two very special things. The first is safety. We should feel safe within our homes. We should feel safe within the mosque. We should feel safe at our workplaces at our schools, wherever we are, we not only should feel safe, others around us should also feel safe. There are far too many cases, far too many situations in which men, women, children, young and old, all experience some sort of physical, verbal, and mental abuse. Now physical, of course, we know very clearly, it is not allowed at all in Islam. Mental abuse and verbal abuse are just the same. But often, verbal abuse is sought for first. People use filthy language towards their own spouses, towards their kids, 
with no regard as to what kind of effect it has in their homes. And this, in fact, removes the safety that somebody could have within their home. In fact, a Muslim is he who should bring about peace in the home. Now with that said, I wanted to again highlight the fact that the very examples that we have in our home sometimes is that, for example, we may have a daughter-in-law who doesn't feel safe at home. Why? Because she is verbally abused either by her mother-in-law, by her father-in-law, or even by her spouse. And in some cases, it turns to physical abuse as well. And overall, just playing mind games with them, it becomes a mental abuse. This is not okay in any way or form. So if we were to show rights of others, we should start here. In our homes, our daughters-in-laws should not feel as if they are strangers in a home. And this should also apply to our mother-in-laws. They should also feel safe and proud and happy in their homes. It should not be that daughter-in-laws are playing various games, telling their husband various things against the mother-in-law. There has to be a genuine pursuit or genuine effort to create peace in the home. The second very important aspect, again, of life within our faith is privacy. And this goes sometimes undetected. And we assume that everything is out, out for the open. But the truth is that everybody should respect each other's personal space. In fact, there is a level of parda that each and every one of us has. Now, usually when I say parda, people think the hijab of a woman. But parda actually means a certain covering, a shield of privacy that each and every human being is given. And there's different levels of it. For example, husband and wife have their own parda. Husband is a garment of a wife and the wife is a garment of a husband. This is, gives them a very special level of parda that nobody else can intrude into. Not the mother-in-law, not the father-in-law, not the children. There are in fact times during the day where a husband and wife are in fact given their complete privacy within their own home. This is mentioned in the Holy Quran. So what ends up happening is that sometimes husbands will expose their wives to public. Sometimes the wives will expose their husbands in public. Sometimes the mother-in-laws or the father-in-laws will get involved so much that they will either intrude, either they will come and inspect the rooms, see what's there. All of these instances are happening behind the scenes and the only way to address them is out here in the open for us to understand that it's not okay. And for us to create this balance, everybody must understand and realize that we have to respect each other's private and personal space. This is a certain level of parda. Moving on, we understand that there's also a liberty within faith. Again, I'm not talking about being free, but I'm talking about the liberty within our faith. And let's start off again in that home where there's a boy and girl and either one of them wants to get married. There are far too many homes that force their children to get married to X, Y, and Z. Now, I'm not saying that the children have the complete liberty to just go outside, find somebody, and bring them home. But there is a level of liberty within our faith that you can choose who you would like to marry. You can set conditions, expectations that you have, things that you feel you will be compatible with. 
Those are not unheard of. Many a times our parents will try to force us to simply say, whoever I bring home, you'll accept. And eventually the kid will come to that understanding, say, fine, whoever you bring home, you'll all accept. But that's just a level of desperation. If you have a truly open conversation with your child, they will have some expectations. They will have some standard. So hear out what are those standards, what are those expectations. Now if there are too many, be the, the, the wise parent by eliminating some of those very high expectations. Some of those shallow things, remove them. Explain to them with wisdom that those are not necessary, those are not needed. But don't force them so much that you're practically going to bring somebody home and they'll just say yes. That's not a, a merit of, of, of truly being willing to marry somebody. That's simply saying, I'll just take whatever is on the table. At the same time, there's also a liberty within divorce. If you choose not to live with somebody, you have that right. But again, parents, cousins, aunts, uncles, relatives, nobody should be forcing somebody to get a divorce. If they see a struggle between a husband and wife, find solutions to help them. If it's they have to live separately, help them to live separately. If within the home it's one particular relative is the one who's the problem, try to separate that person for a little bit. See how you can help that couple to live their life. But again, if at the end of the day, they wish to have divorce, then they have the freedom to do that. There's other liberties within faith as well. That again, for example, with prayer. Many of us think that prayer is at 6.25 a.m. That's the prayer time, period. But that's not a reality. The reality is that when Hazrat Jibreel salam, came, he would show the Holy Prophet Muhammad wasallam, the beginning of prayer and the end of prayer. And there were ranges. Most of the prayers are an hour, hour and a half range. Anywhere in between could be prayer time. I know sometimes in the mosque we're looking at the clock, all of us, that why hasn't prayer started exactly 6.25 a.m.? But the question is why is prayer set at 6.25 a.m.? When Fajr can be almost an hour and a half time, why is Fajr at one particular time? And the reason again, the wisdom behind that is, that if I were to tell all of you, come to the mosque any time between this whole hour, and then we'll have congregational prayer, how many of us would make it at the same time? Somebody would come five minutes, somebody would 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Even when we give the exact time, we can't get people to come at the same time, right? So this is the reason why in our mosque, we publish a specific time. For people to assume that this is the only time, again, they don't understand that within Islam, there is a liberty within our faith. Similarly, where you pray, every other religion requires you to go to an altar, a synagogue, a temple, a church, that is where you pray. But in Islam, the Holy Prophet Muhammad <laughs> was given the liberty that the entire world has been made a masjid. Any place you can pray, any time you can pray, you can combine prayers based on your need. There's a lot of liberty within faith, and there's many other examples of that as well. The last, of course, with regards to our rights and our duties towards other people is our pursuit of happiness. Again, our pursuit of happiness within faith. The example here would be that sometimes there are many of us who every once in a while will have that push towards 
increasing our faith towards being more devoted. And what happens? The moment we start to have a sajda that's 20 seconds longer, everybody starts judging, oh, this man has become a Sufi now. Oh, wow, look at him. Sometimes in our homes we do this. Sometimes in the mosque we do this. They start to say, oh, you, you think you're very righteous now, huh? You came for two extra prayers this week? This is in fact those people who are discouraging us to excel in our faith. This is also very detrimental in our growth. And this happens among youngsters, amongst our homes. If the entire family is over, extended family, and one person will say, or maybe sometimes a youth, he will say, let's have congregational prayer. Everybody will look at him, what's wrong with you? Why are you bothering us? Go do your own prayer. There are other cases of this as well. For example, sometimes there are husbands who will discourage their wives from doing parda. A wife will spend her whole entire life doing parda. And now she gets married and the husband says, I don't like you doing parda. People look at me differently. Now just for a moment, I want to tell those husbands who think this is okay. Those of you who wear a watch, I've given this example many a times. What happens the day you don't wear a watch? What do you feel? You feel naked. So how do you expect somebody who has covered their head their entire life to all of a sudden uncover their head and feel like they should be normal? They should be okay. They have established a certain level of shame. Just like you have done to your wrist by wearing a simple watch. So for us to honor them at least with this level, you should of course be encouraging your wives to do parda and vice versa. But this idea also exists and it's very unfortunate that our husbands sometimes even discourage their wives from doing that. There are other cases when I have seen in my own youth that people would discourage children from giving sadqah. They would see a homeless man and say, don't give it to him. And sometimes they would cite that, oh, in Pakistan we used to give it to them, then they would bother us, they would keep coming back. But a child living here in America won't understand why he's not supposed to give it. He will simply grow up, he or she will simply grow up thinking, that giving sadqa to a homeless man is bad. He will not understand the wisdom behind it. And now you have set up a whole generation of people who do not want to give sadqa. Or do not want to give charity. These are small things that we do sometimes unknowingly. Stopping the pursuit of happiness. Stopping that excelling in faith. So these are all various rights that we must honor and we must remember and we must keep in mind. So that we can keep a good balance in our homes. Another example of course is going back to our homes. Sometimes there is a, a daughter-in-law who wants to go to the mosque for a Jamaat function. There is a Lajna meeting. And the mother-in-law will say, no, you're staying home. You do the laundry again for no reason. They will come up with reasons why she has extra amount of duties. So she cannot go to the mosque. This is not okay. This is again discouraging somebody from going to the mosque. If somebody wants to go to prayer at the mosque, encourage them, enable them, help them. It should not be the opposite. So look deep down inside and see whether we are encouraging. If we are truly vying with one another to do good works, or are we simply doing leg pulling? Because if somebody else excels, then it makes me look bad. So let's not let them excel in faith. That is not going to help us increase as a community. We should encourage each other. And if somebody is excelling, try to catch up. Don't pull him back. May Allah help us to do that. Amen. Allahumma salli ala Muhammadin wa ala Ali Muhammadin wa barik wa salim innaka hamidun majid.